Managing your 401k is hard. Bloom isn't. See what you could be doing to make your 401k better by getting a free analysis at bloom401k.com slash fool. That's bloom with three O's, 401k.com slash fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, everybody. It's the June Mailbag, and so we also have special guest Sean Gates, a financial planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management. A sister company of The Motley Fool. Today, we're going to answer your questions about health insurance for early retirees, avoiding transaction fees, finding a fair fee-only advisor, and whether you should prioritize paying off your mortgage. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Sean, have you been? Great. It's been a while since you've been on the show. It has been. I'm glad to be back. The last time you were on the show, you were a single man, and now... Now I'm a married man. You're a married man. How's it going? What if I said, now I'm a divorced man? (laughs) (laughs) Just went straight to... (laughs) Then we'd be doing this episode on a different subject. So you're getting a divorce with Sean Gates. (laughs) All right. Should we get into the mailbag? Let's do it. First question comes from Daniel. Daniel writes, My 69-year-old mom receives $547 a month from Social Security and has $100,000 in a savings account. That's all she has. How can I maximize her money without risk losing it? You discussed I-bonds on a previous show, but I have no idea what those are. So, I'm looking for more information and also some other options. Is it too late to start a retirement account? Thanks as always, and stay awesome, or rather foolish. Daniel. Uh, Daniel, well, good for you for trying to help your mom, because she's in a tough situation, right? You didn't indicate whether she's retired or not, but I'm going to guess that she probably is. You can get Social Security and still be working, but I'm going to guess she's retired. If she is capable of working, I think that's actually something for her to consider doing because she's a young retiree and she really does not have that much money. Social Security, the average, she has about half of the average monthly benefit. Um, so, if possible, uh, she should consider going back to work if she can. Now, um, for someone who's either in retirement or close to retirement, the first rule of thumb that I always throw out there is that you should have the next five years worth of income you expect from your portfolio out of the stock market. So, that'd be the first thing. You put it somewhere safe. You mentioned I-bonds. Um, you can learn more about them at treasurydirect.gov. I don't think they're necessarily a good option for most of the money, because they're not good for providing current income. You have to leave them alone for five years, or you pay a penalty. But there might be, for a little bit of the income, it's possible. Otherwise, I'd look at high-yielding savings account, maybe CDs. Something like that. A one-year CD these days you can get for about two and a half percent. Normally, I'd say also for a retiree, you'd be looking at a general like sixty percent stocks, forty percent fixed income portfolio, and that that three to five years of income out of the market would be part of that forty percent. But I don't know if I'd comfortable recommending that she go sixty percent into the stock market when you have so little. That you have to play it. You have to play it pretty safe. Even a 60-40 portfolio dropped 25, 30 percent in 2008. It recovered, of course, um, but it would just make me nervous. And especially someone who hasn't accumulated much over her career, I'm guessing she's probably not invested in the stock market. So doing that now at her age would be tough. I, I think it's still worth considering maybe a broadly diversified, dividend-oriented. Stock portfolio for a small portion of it. Such a portfolio these days, like the, the dividend-focused funds, yield maybe 3.2 percent. So that's a good start. 
but she'd have to be comfortable with the possibility of that going down 30 40% and at any given time. Yeah, I mean I I would say the piece of information that I think we're missing from this is how much money she needs off of the portfolio. Yeah. So that's a big piece of it. If if her social security and other income sources provide her retirement needs, then maybe the 100,000 could go into stocks at a heavier degree, but um yeah, I think all bros advice is good and just Get her started. Yeah, and it doesn't say anything about whether she owns a home or not. If she does, she's a great candidate for a reverse mortgage at some point down yep. the road. Yeah. All right, next question comes from Isaac. In the first week of February, the market took a hit. I read several articles about why it happened and really couldn't pinpoint a good reason. I believed the sell-off was irrational, so I took $3,000 out on margin and decided to only hold for one month. My thought process was that I could buy solid companies that had reported good earnings or were about to. However, I did not want to hold for long because I know that margin can be dangerous. So, I bought five companies. At the end of the month, I sold everything for a total gain of just under 10%. I know it's a small amount of money, but anything helps a medical student. This strategy seemed to have worked well for me, despite making the poor decisions of using margin and holding for a short time period. So my question, was this foolish with a lowercase f, foolish with a capital F, or somewhere in between? I love how Isaac's doing this while he's in medical school. <laughs> <laughs> Got some time on your hands? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in between gross anatomy. <laughs> you know, I would say the answer falls squarely for me on somewhere in between. Uh, I think <laughs> <laughs> this is decisively somewhere in the gray area. <laughs> I mean, it's it's lowercase f foolish from the standpoint of, you know, you're sort of convincing yourself that this was a good decision because you thought you had some sort of insight into the irrational sell-off in the market, but you really don't have any insight into it. No one knows. Nobody does. Yeah, and so, and then also the timeline. So the timeline was very short. So that's capital or that's lowercase f foolish because you should only be risking that type of equity with money you're willing to lose, essentially, on a 50-50 coin flip. And I don't know that you were in that case, maybe. Um, but I think one of the positive things of this question is, capital F foolish, margin isn't always bad. I think margin gets a very bad rap. It's almost like it's it's a risk zone that no one should go into. But it's just a form of debt, in a way, and everyone uses debt to facilitate their financial goals. I personally use mortgage to fin- or margin to finance some of my own house, uh, because houses here are ridiculously expensive, and I didn't have a you know $200,000 down payment. But I did have an investment account, and I think one of the important pieces to know is, or one of the things to take away is, it's important to have a taxable account that you can use for margin, right? You need a fairly large taxable account because margin has requirements. And so, let's say, for example, you have a $100,000 taxable brokerage investment account. Uh, you wouldn't want to take $70,000 on margin because now you're at a 70% margin loan balance. And that is very risky because if the stocks go down, the margin requirements will get called and they'll just sell everything on you. Um, but if you took out $20,000 on a $100,000 account, now you have a 20% margin balance. And that's not so bad. You know, It's very unlikely that stocks are going to drop 80% and have to have you force sell positions. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that that's a capital F foolish way to utilize margin. Yeah, basically margin allows you to to magnify gains, but has the potential to magnify losses. And as long as you're willing to do that, it's okay for some people. But I would say definitely investing in the stock market 
for a one month time frame because you feel like you have a specific insight into that, I think you're that's pretty risky. Yeah, and the other interesting thing is he says his total gain is 10%, but I'm wondering if he included the margin interest cost in right. that calculation. Probably not. Uh, so there is a cost associated with doing margin loans. Yeah, I yeah. assume you have short term capital gains and all that too, or no? Well, you, no, you would, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it depends. So there is just a raw cost to borrow, like, mm-hmm. a, you know, so if you have a 4% interest rate on your mortgage, there is a raw cost interest rate to uh, lend out that money. Um, but that then there are other implications. If you have to sell to pay down the mortgage, you would have short-term or long-term capital. So there's a yeah a ton of knock-on effects. As yeah, well. and you can't use margin in an IRA. So there's exactly definitely if you're using margin, you're, there are going to be tax consequences. Totally. Next question comes from Jeff. My wife has a Roth IRA with Fidelity in which we bought a Vanguard Target Date Fund. I recently realized that every time we add money to the fund, they charge a seventy-five dollar fee. Yeah. Woof. Would you recommend waiting until we have a large enough sum of money to add to the fund to make the fee 1% to 2% of the investment, or perhaps open an account with Vanguard and transfer the fund? Or maybe there is a better option than those two. My wife and I each already have a Roth IRA and 401k, so if I transferred the fund to a normal account, wouldn't I get taxed on the dividends? So, what he has encountered is what's called a transaction fee. So, when you open up a regular brokerage account, you buy a stock, you pay a commission, it's usually like $7 to $10. But when you buy a mutual fund, it can cost you, as we are seeing here, $75, unless it is a non-transaction fee fund, and you'll see a little NTF on the broker's website. So, one thing he might consider doing is just selling that fund and buying a fund that is an NTF fund. I will point out, though, that there's a reason why Vanguard's fund in this situation is charging that, because to be in these sort of like big brokerages, a mutual fund company has to pay Fidelity a fee to be on their fund marketplace. And in the end, the person who owns that fund is going to pay that. I've read an article that says the average is they're paying the broker 0.4% just to be on their platform. Wow. So, to a certain degree, you're going to pay for it either way. So, if you love Vanguard's target retirement fund, my recommendation would be then to transfer the money to Vanguard. Um, now, the second part of your question about how you said that you both, you and your wife, have a Roth IRA and a 401k, um, it sounds like you, you're not aware of the fact that you can transfer this money to those accounts. You don't have to transfer the money to a taxable account. Because if you did do that, that would be considered distribution. That would be taxable. You'd pay penalties. You can just transfer it to your existing accounts. It might be that you are aware of the annual contribution limits to those accounts, and you might be confusing those contribution contribution limits with what you can transfer. There's no limit on how much money you can transfer from one account to another. So, if you transferred this Roth IRA Fidelity to another Roth IRA, that wouldn't affect how much money you could then contribute as a regular contribution. I'm just assuming, just kind of reading between the lines there and what the confusion is there. Yeah, and I think the only other thing I would add is, if you, I don't think I would recommend waiting to collect a large sum of money before purchasing a mutual fund. I think that waiting has an opportunity cost associated with it, where you might be discounting. Um, so I think looking for alternate funds to invest in that don't have that commission would be a better option than just waiting until you have some sum of money to cover the cost of the $75 transaction fee. Yeah, we've talked about studies before that have looked at dollar cost averaging versus lump sum investing. Um, and you're better off just getting the money in as soon as you can. Um, so, 
and just to back up what you said, there's having your money just sit around in a cash account until you've accumulated enough. There's yeah. a cost to that. Yeah. Next question comes from Diane. I plan to retire soon, and my husband and I need health insurance until we are old enough for Medicare. Three years for me and eight for him. He is on my health insurance now since he is running a small business out of our home. I think the first thing that I would say is that Allison is modest and that the first seven sentences of that question were love for Allison. So just, just for one. Uh, Diane was kind enough to say that she loves to hear my voice because I sound so wonderfully happy. And I am. How could I not be wonderfully happy with you guys? Yeah. Thank you, Diane. That's very sweet of you to say. Um, but I think this is a... I run into this question in my day-to-day all of the time now. There's a huge swath of retirees who are getting to the point where they're not quite Medicare age, but the clock has punched its last card, so to speak, and they need options for health care. So there's really, of, of what I know of, there's really three options that you can do. You can do COBRA, which is an extension of your existing health insurance, but that has a time delay on it, so you can only have that for about 18 months, and you have to pay the equivalent amount of premiums that you would have while you were employed to get a similar level of coverage to your employer. So that'll gap you some of whatever, you know, if you're 60 and you need to make it to 65, that gets you to 61 and a half. So that's part of the way there, and usually a good option. And then for the rest of the time period, there's really two ways. The Obamacare exchanges, which everyone hates uh, until they need it. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I won't lie, they are getting more expensive. It is very difficult. You used to be able to find plans that had nice benefits like HSAs, and those are becoming less and less common on the exchanges. So just the selection is worse and worse, but it is still one of the only options. And then the second option, which I will sort of make you aware of, but is risky in its own right, is something called uh, health share ministries, or sort of, it's a, it's basically not health insurance as codified by law, but it is something that's snuck in as a loophole, so to speak, where religious organizations, because they didn't want to pay for things like abortions or things like that in the premium coverage, um, we're allowed to create this almost separate entity where it's a, it's basically a cost-sharing pool, which almost all insurance is, but it's relegated to particular organizations. So in this case, you might see uh, an example is Christian Healthcare Ministries. So if you went to their website, it's a group of like-minded Christians, um, and you can sign up and basically you pay a monthly contribution to a pool of dollars that then covers every person who's in that group's costs of coverage. Now, the tricks here are prescription drugs are not included, so you have to pay those out of pocket. There's there's really no coverage at all. And then, you know, you just have to wonder is that organization managing the funds well? If, you know, if 50% of the people got cancer and needed tremendous amounts of healthcare costs, is that going to support it? And again, this is not classified as health insurance and so it's not regulated the same way as a traditional health insurance option. But the reason that I mention it with the caveat of all those risks is that again, Obamacare exchange programs are expensive. And so I've been in situations where people are like, I want health insurance, but it's gonna cost me $4,000 a month. That's oh, more than oof. my mortgage. What? I can't do it. And so, yeah, it, it's just, it's too much. And in that case, this option is a fair one because to put a dollars to it, if you had that $4,000 mortgage or um, $4,000 monthly payment, 
you might be able to find a healthcare uh, sharing account that would cost you around uh, five to $700 a month. And I've heard some pretty good success stories on having those things covered. So, Huh. I yeah. have never heard of this. Now, are they going to card you to make sure that you are a Christian? <laughs> like, That is an excellent question. I'm secular <laughs> myself, so I recommend this to all people. Uh, they, they do not card you. Um, and, you know... Um, there, this is becoming a more uh, large phenomenon, so other, organ, other affinity groups, so to speak, are starting to enter this market. Thanks to Bloom for supporting Motley Fool Answers. It's time to get your retirement on track and fix your 401k with Bloom. That's Bloom with three O's. Sound tough? It's not. In fact, it only takes five minutes. If you've listened to the show like ever, you know that choosing the best investments for your 401k isn't easy. But Bloom is here to help. Go online to bloom401k.com slash fool and simply connect your existing 401k in a few easy steps. Then sit back and relax while Bloom performs an unbiased analysis of the funds in your account and chooses the best mix to meet your goals while minimizing hidden investment fees. With Bloom's free analysis, you can see the impact they can make on your 401k before you even pay. And if you want... You can pay them 10 bucks a month, and Bloom monitors your account and adjusts as needed, making sure your funds stay balanced and you keep on track with your goals as you get older. Bloom also allows you to work with a financial advisor when you need one. Bloom is simple. In fact, the hardest part about this is remembering that there are three O's in Bloom. So go to bloom401k.com fool and enter promo code fool for your first month free and see the difference Bloom could make in your retirement. I'm sending a postcard. I don't care who sees what I've said. Or if the whole knows what's in my head. Next question comes from Al. Dear Allison and Bro, but mostly Bro. <laughs> you have talked about putting cash in CDs and treasuries to earn higher interest than what you can get in a savings account. I have a brokerage account, and there are many CD choices with decent returns. How much effort do I need to spend looking into the banks that I choose? I know the money is FDIC insured, but what does that mean? If the banks go under, will my widow be waiting for reimbursement from the government for years while I, like old John Brown, lay a moldering in my grave? Or can I hearken back to my hippie roots, be a free spirit, and just send my money off willy-nilly to any bank with a groovy rate? Thank you, but mostly Allison, for making me smile each week. So uh, I'll start off by pointing out the difference between bank CDs and broker CDs. So if you go to the bank, you give them, let's say, $10,000. You don't pay a commission generally. It's sort of just built into the structure of the CD. And if it's due in five years, five years, you'll get the money back. And if you redeem it early, you'll pay like three months worth of interest as a penalty. CDs you get from your broker can be different. First of all, some of them trade like bonds. So while they may have a par value of like $10,000, they might be worth a little less or a little bit more because they're trading on the secondary market. Um, also, not all broker CDs are FDIC insured, so it's important to know whether it actually is FDIC insured or not. And another thing to consider is that some CDs can be callable, which means, let's say, you buy a five-year CD, but the bank may have the option of basically turning it in early, like three years, saying, sorry, we're going to give you your money back early, and you didn't expect that. So those are all things to look at. Once you do all that, as long as it's FDIC insured, I think you can feel relatively safe about that. And I should say that if you're buying it on the secondary market, the insurance is based on the value of the CD when it matures, not what you paid for it. So keep that in mind with known as the par value. 
Um, just so, so you know a little bit about FDIC insurance, it is, as they define it, um, it is $250,000 per depositor, per FDIC-insured bank, per ownership category. So that means you could actually be at the same bank and have $250,000 in just a regular old single-owned account, and then $250,000 in an IRA. Those are two different ownership categories, and you're still covered. And if you go to the FDIC's website, they have something called ED, the Electronic Deposit Insurance Estimator, and it basically tells you how much insurance you have. Um, I do think it's interesting that he put that uh, if the bank goes under, will my widow be waiting for reimbursement from the government? Like somehow, the bank going under and him dying is tied together. So I don't know if whatever's bringing the bank down is going to also bring him down because they're sort of separate categories. He lives under the bank. I guess so. <laughs> something, something there. Uh, but generally speaking, according to the FDIC, if it's a regular old bank, it only takes one to two days for you to get your money. They either open up an account for you at another bank that is solvent, or they just write you the check. So you get the money pretty quickly. But that is a difference between that and a broker CD. Uh, broker CDs can take up to 60 to 90 days to get the money. But generally, you do get the money pretty quickly. All right. Next question comes from Kevin from Phoenix. I have an inherited IRA from a non-spouse that I've elected to take required minimum distributions from. I can remove any amount of money from the account, but it will be fully taxed according to my income level. As long as I am taking the required minimum distributions each year, the rest will grow tax-deferred. If I am committed to a foolish philosophy of investing that has a very long time horizon, would it be wise to remove larger amounts of money from the inherited IRA now and let it be taxed as ordinary income so that the future growth could be taxed as long-term capital gains? Otherwise, if it's kept in the IRA, then all the gains will eventually be taxed as ordinary income. This is a great question. And I don't have a good answer. No, uh, this is <laughs> part of the reason that I like this question is because it de- it delves right into the heart of pretty much how I help people. The vast majority, like this, is the number one way that I help people the most. And it's really the best way to think about it is income recognition. So you have all of this wealth that you've spent all of your mental energy thinking of and accumulating, and but then once you have to flip it over to actually distributing it to yourself, you don't know which account to pull it from when. Uh, and this this goes to the heart of it. So, a couple of things to consider because I don't think I can answer it outright uh, on this podcast. But because um, it'd be too specific, and it'd personal. be yeah, maybe too specific, but I'd probably arm you with enough information to hurt yourself. <laughs> and I don't. I well, actually, I'm okay with that. But um, <laughs> uh, talk to Al. Okay, and um, so in this case, the things to consider. Are you haven't really outlined what your tax rates are? So if you make seven hundred thousand dollars or in the thirty-five percent tax bracket, then it almost certainly does not make sense to recognize that income now. Yeah. You, I think you're missing the forest for the trees. Tax deferral is an amazing benefit in and of itself, and at your high tax bracket, high tax bracket, being able to defer that at in perpetuity is the best thing you can do. Um, so then, if you're in a lower tax bracket, much smarter to do this, um, and then it sort of comes a game. So, what if you're in the 20% tax bracket? Uh, then you need to think about timeline. So, if you have, a, you know, if you're 20, I don't think he said how old he was either. Yeah. So, if you're 20, then maybe because maybe now you know you have a long enough timeline, and you can start to almost project into the future. Because if you pull it out of your IRA, number one, you won't have that account 
recognize you with required minimum distributions when you're older, and that's a benefit long term. Uh, and then number two, if you pull it into a taxable account, the other thing to consider is that if you have um, goals to leave those monies to heirs, then that taxable account would get a step up in basis for your heirs when you die, which the IRA does not. So you, they would owe income taxes on the income from your IRA that you haven't reduced by pulling money out sooner. Uh, so just some things to think about. There's a lot more in there. But you know, another good thing to think about is if if you're working now and you know for the next 10 years that's your plan, but in year five you take a sabbatical, an unpaid sabbatical, and you don't have income in that year, that might be the year where you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take a large chunk out of my IRA. And so it's just a game of mapping out future probabilities and recognizing this income in the most optimal time period. Yeah, and obviously, while the money is in the IRA, you're not paying taxes on interest, on dividends, on any capital gains. Totally. Once you take that out, you'll pay ordinary income in that distribution. Then, even if you hold on to a stock for 20 years, if it pays a dividend, you'll pay taxes. If you want to pare back a little bit or rebalance, you'll pay taxes. So, there is a lot of benefit to keeping yeah. money in a traditional IRA yeah, or totally. regular IRA. Um, and I'll just point out that. This is something a lot of people aren't aware of, and that if you inherit an IRA from someone who wasn't your spouse, you you do have to take out a required minimum distribution every year. Yeah, it's, it's a super important point to the investment plan type that you have. If you're a day trader, this isn't going to make sense. Right. If you follow the foolish investing philosophy, it might make more sense. So yeah, totally. All right, next question comes from Jason. I'm getting ready to sell my personal residence. Everyone around me assumes I'll have to pay taxes unless I reinvest it in another home. But the IRS website says I can exclude up to $250,000 profit on the home if I meet the certain criteria, which I do. I'm not looking to buy another home anytime soon and would like to save the majority of the profit for the future, as well as some short-term use like maxing out my Roth. That's adorable that he calls maxing out his Roth a short-term use. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jason, I love you. <laughs> uh, sorry, last sentence. Will I be able to keep the entire profit? So, uh, generally speaking, it's always better to, to uh, believe the IRS website versus your friends. And in this case, <laughs> the IRS website is true. It's known as the Home Sale Exclusion or Section 121. Basically, you can exclude exclude. Uh, a profit of $250,000 or $500,000 if you're married and you file jointly. There are some criteria that's basically the, the most important is uh, that you uh, it must the house that you're selling must have been your main home for at least two of the past five years and that you haven't claimed the home sale exclusion already during the past two years. Um, if you don't fi- meet that criteria, there are actually still some ways to at least get partially get the exclusion at least partially. Uh, if you move for job purposes, medical, there's some medical reasons if you work for some branches of the government. So even if you don't meet those criteria, look dig a little deeper, you might at least get a partial exclusion. What your friends are talking about is something for real estate investors, so not your residents, but for investors. That's known as a section 1031 or 1031 in exchange. They're thinking about rental properties. So I think that's where that's coming from, but it doesn't apply to your primary residence. Um, I think you're on the right track in the sense that if you don't need the money anytime soon, you can consider it as a longer-term investment type of thing. Uh, We've talked in previous episodes how you actually can use money in your IRA to pay for another home eventually. So That's something to think about. But if you were going to buy a home in the next year or two, I would say play pretty safe. Um, And then my final piece of advice is just be aware of 
there are certain tax benefits to owning a home, deducting mortgage interest and property taxes. Once you sell the home, you won't have that. So just be aware of how no longer owning a home is going to affect your tax bill. Next question comes to us from Bruce. I have been interviewing fee-based advisors, but I find their business model unconscionable. For instance, I can invest $100,000 with a fee-based advisor, and they fee me 1% of the portfolio value. So, they charge me 1000 a year, get personal information about me like tax info, risk tolerance, retirement goals, hobbies, pet names, kids' names, and other seemingly non-relevant financial information. They invest our money in their recommended funds and introduce me to their, real, their estate law and tax advisors, who I would pay extra to sit with. Then they offer to meet with me and the wife three or four times a year. The first 15 minutes is to get caught up on the kids, travel, and grandchildren. And then the next 15 minutes, they tell me the situation about our portfolio, which they don't really manage. They just use another company to advise them on where to put our money. Man, everyone, listeners are getting the inside <laughs> scoop here. Okay, we're not done yet. Bruce has more. They invite us to events with their chosen speakers and give us something to eat, and they are real friendly. Here's the rub. My neighbor invests $2 million and they get exactly the same treatment, but they pay $20,000 a year. Why does the Department of Labor consider this fair value? Where are the honest IRAs who only charge for checkup meetings or special meetings aimed at discussing new circumstances? Why can't I pay a couple hundred dollars for their expert advice when I need it? Lot, lot there for, from Bruce. Bruce does not want your chosen speakers and snacks. He wants advice, good advice at a fair price. He also doesn't want to talk about his travelers. Yeah. No. I don't, <laughs> I don't care about your kids, Bruce. I, love I feel like I'm sitting there in the room with him across the desk, and he's just like, the kids are fine. Let's get to it. Uh, all right, so here we go from the sister company, The Motley Fool. Is he right in, in what he's saying? In part, yeah. Yeah, he is. Uh, so, this is tough because you have to know a lot of the stuff that you think is non-relevant financial information to give good advice. Yeah, that was my first reaction looking at that. A lot of that, a lot of that information is actually really important. It's super important, and I know it doesn't seem like it, but those questions help us ask questions that you're not thinking to ask. And it's and so, yeah, it's tough. But but on to your point. Um, if it's true that they're charging you 1% and you're not seeing value from it, meaning the growth of your portfolio isn't overcoming that fee or isn't doing better than the S&P 500, then yeah, you're, you're probably in the wrong situation. There are model portfolios and investment managers who can outperform the S&P 500. It's difficult, but they exist, so don't discount all of them for that. And then the other key thing that I would mention is just, you know, there, there are actually a lot of studies that are coming out that show that the value of financial planning advice is worth some amount of investment return. Now, there's different reports have different values, but it ranges between like 1.75% and 3.5%. And that's not insignificant. If you compound that over time, it's a huge amount of value creation potential that's there. And so I just, I, I see a lot of bad raps for 1% advisors and charging people. You know, if you have a million dollar portfolio, that's $10,000 a year. That seems like an enormous amount of money, but you I feel like I've been able to provide well over that amount in fee to them in advice, and if I can't, I'll tell them. Yeah. And and there are advisors who charge a flat fee or charge by the hour. Um, but those are just 
uh, one-time, two-time, three-time engagements. It's not ongoing advice. So for someone who's mostly a do-it-yourselfer or someone who wants to be very involved in the process and very hands-on, I love it. I think it's great. Um, but if you are wanting to work with someone who is doing more of the ongoing management, it's a different type of story. I mean, I would say Bruce is, Bruce is obviously meeting with people who are not convincing him yeah. mm-hmm. of the value. Like, like he would have to pay extra for tax help, for yeah. example. I, you should expect a little bit of tax guidance and even a little bit of estate planning guidance from a financial advisor. Not in a complete estate plan that should be done by an attorney, but you should get at least some guidance from your financial advisor. And if you're not, if Bruce is not meeting with people who are or convincing him that they're providing enough service, then he should just keep looking, I think, because they're out there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think part of Bruce's problem and, and everyone's problem is there's a ton of people, a whole industry of people who want to help you for an innumerable amount of different charge methodologies. So there's out, you know, there's hourly, there's fee based, there's commission based. So it's just really hard as a consumer to figure out who's honest and I don't know that I have good advice other than look for the reputable companies. But. Yeah, Bruce also brought up the Department of Labor, and I'll just point out the Department of Labor w- does have jurisdiction over things like employer plans and things like that. Just flat out financial advisors, that's more of an SEC type of thing. Yeah, FINRA. And FINRA. Yeah. 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 Well, his it sounds like his concern is that uh, it's a flat percent no matter how much money you have. So he's paying, his neighbor's paying 20000 a year, he's paying 1000 a year, and they're getting the same level of service. Is that true? Are they? I think I think that there's there's a lot of truth to that for sure. Um, on the other hand, there's also someone who does have more money does tend to have more complicated finances. Yeah, not only do they tend to have more complicated finances, but the value creation from financial planning escalates the more money you have. So, a particular tax saving strategy for someone who has twenty million dollars. If I if you're paying me twenty thousand dollars as a one percent fee. You know, I might save you two hundred thousand dollars in taxes. Whereas, if you have less money, it, the the benefit just scales with the amount of money that you have. So, in effect, the value that they're getting is higher than the value that you're getting, even though the fee is the same on an apples to apples comparison. And then you may be extrapolating incorrectly. A lot of fee schedules have breakpoints. So, if you have zero to five hundred thousand dollars, you're charged one percent. If you have five hundred thousand to a million, you're charged 0.75. and so it goes down the more uh, wealth that you have. In fact, I, I would say that's standard. That is fairly common, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, that that's just something to consider as well. Yeah. All right. Next question comes from Ryan. I work at a community health center and have been trying to improve our 403b. Our financial advisor has had us in some high expense funds. The 12b1 fees, oh, 12b1 fees. The worst. Our point two, that's our my least favorite fee. Our 0.25% and most of the expense ratios are around 1.25%. This year with extra support from the health center, the financial advisor agreed to offer three index funds. He was not keen on doing this, but agreed. He also is putting in target dates funds, as I had recommended. However, he went with American funds and not Vanguard. So I am frustrated with this. What can I do? Also, I am trying to explain to others so that they understand how index funds are generally better than actively managed funds. The problem is that the financial advisor picks funds that seem to have outperformed the index funds. How dare he? Am I missing something? How do I explain this to others? 
Uh, well, so oh, f- keep fighting the good fight, I was going to say, first of all, you should be treated like a hero by yes. your colleague. Like, they should be naming babies after you or, <laughs> or at least taking you out for lunch. One of those two. But good for you for improving the company plan because it benefits everybody. So, the, so we, we mentioned the 12B1 fees. They're basically, it's, you're paying the mutual fund company's costs of marketing. It's bananas. It's bananas. I mean, to a certain degree, everybody does that for every business that they use, but it's just so Not explicit. so about it, right? <laughs> it's so blatant. And the idea was, this came out in 1980, and the idea was, well, if, if people pay for the marketing, we'll attract more assets, and then we can lower overall costs. But studies have shown that's not exactly what has happened. Companies don't usually do that. <laughs> they don't do that. So, we got more customers, now we're going to lower costs. Right, exactly. <laughs> anyway, so that just annoys me. Anyways, the, the, the deal with this financial advisor, from what I can tell, is the, the bottom line is different mutual fund families pay, have different payout schemes for the advisors. So the reason why this guy probably chose American funds, targeting funds over Vanguard's, is he's making more money from American. In fact, I think Vanguard doesn't pay anyone anything. Um, So that's why, including their employees. (laughs) (laughs) I've been to the campus. It's nice. It's nice. Nice enough. It's nice enough. Um, So that's that's why he's doing it. And And I also also assume I tried to look this up. This was definitely true in the past. I couldn't figure out whether it's still the truth. But basically, advisors get paid less from index funds than they do from other types so, of so funds. So, Brian needs to stand up during a company meeting, point at the advisor, and say, Jacuz! <laughs> Throw bananas at him. Throw bananas at him! <laughs> I didn't know what the B stood for. and I've been in this industry for 15 years. <laughs> the B's for bananas! Well, bananas won fees. Right. Um, I will say that um, what I, I don't think there's... Anyone at the Motley Fool who's who are bigger proponents of index funds than Sh- Sean and me? Yeah, Sean and me, me and Sean. Sean I don't know. I. I wish I were a grammar <laughs> teacher. Um, uh, so we, I admire that you are pushing for the index funds. That said, you can have a good plan with actively managed funds. I own actively managed funds. The Motley Fool four hundred one k is actively managed funds. So, if the advisor's picking ones that do beat the indexes, that's good. So I don't think you have to go. Um, whole hog on that. Having three index funds is actually above average, so that's good. Um, but basically, if I were to recommend anything, it would be to question whether you even need the financial advisor. You can go to companies that will just administer the plan for you without the help of a financial advisor. If he is not adding value and if he seems more like getting in the way and is an obstacle to you having an awesome plan, maybe you should just go directly to a plan provider. Could be a bank, could be a big mutual fund company, but they will work directly with companies. You don't need an, a financial advisor. And we go, we go just directly with a bank, don't we? We go directly with a bank, yeah. Yeah, here at the Motley Fool. The only, other, the, I think, the only caveat I might mention with like our plan, where we go right to a bank, is so a lot of firm, a lot of companies will hire a financial advisor because they're in this case, I think the DOL does apply where. Um, you you are a fiduciary as the mm. plan administrator, and so you need some you know figurehead to represent the fiduciary standard in administering the plan, and most people just outsource it to financial advisors. And so if they went direct to a bank, they might not have a team of fiduciaries available. Um, um. They might they might not, but but just something to be aware of in terms of why. But yeah, and then I think I would just make a plug for the fact that. You did an awesome job, and I want to make a baby with you <laughs> that we can then name after you. Uh, but I think more broadly, what I what, we all I love guess, Brian. I think more broadly, what I would say is that 
you know, we are, Bro and I are, are some of the largest advocate for index funds. I use index funds, but I also pick my own stocks. Like, I think I can outperform the market and have in some cases. And so it's it's not. I think there's a tendency to think it's a zero sum game or mutually exclusive. In that, if you have index funds, that's all you should have, and people are becoming almost overzealous about it. But having both options is fine. Like that's good. Yeah. Good yeah. job. But really, keep up the great work. Good for yeah, you, Brian. yeah, totally. Yay, Brian! And all the babies to come <laughs> in nine months, named Brian. All right, our next question comes off of the twitters. It comes from Soli. What? Uh, or maybe just solely what? Solely what I hear. Oh, I get it. Solely what I hear. Okay. Uh, you said that it's good to have your mortgage paid off in retirement. Well, what, but what about your working years? Even the Motley Fool likes companies with little to no debt, debt free, stress free. Thoughts? Well, if you want to be debt free at any point in your life, I think that's a great goal. From a numbers perspective, the reason why someone would say you should keep the mortgage is if you have a mortgage and it's only costing you 4%. Why not? And that frees up money to invest, and you can earn six, seven, eight, twelve percent. From a numbers perspective, that makes total sense. But there are studies that have shown over and over again that having less debt makes you feel happier to a certain degree, depending on the study you look at, increases satisfaction in retirement. Obviously, gives you more flexibility because if anything happens to your job or the economy, you've lowered your must pay expenses. So, there are lots of Good psychological reasons to pay off the mortgage. So, if you if that's your goal, go for it. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add is again, all, these questions don't have a definitive answer or aren't mutually exclusive. So, early on in a in a mortgage, paying some principal is extremely beneficial because interest tends to compound in a way. It's not not exactly a one to one compounding, but a ten thousand dollar principal payment into a two hundred thousand dollar mortgage. In the first year is going to have an enormous impact on the total amount of interest that you pay, and so you don't have to pay off your mortgage entirely, but at least take a bite out of it early on and reduce that interest compounding effect. And I think you can be you can do both. You can have an investment account and pay off your mortgage to some extent, and win-win. Well, that's it for the questions. You want to stick around and hear some other stuff from the mailbag? Sure. Kenneth sent some nice photos as a virtual postcard with his dad on a trip to Sweden, wearing his full cap, which is nice to see. Uh, in our last mailbag episode, we talked a bit about 529s. Bro, you remember? I remember. I and was there. And so, we got an email from Scott, who works at Virginia 529. Nice. And he heard our last mailbag episode, and he took exception, and I would say rightly so, uh, with the comment made by Naima, uh, specifically when she referenced that someone moving out of Virginia might want to consider a plan that has better investment options or is one of the more reputable 529 plans. Well, Scott says, our Invest 529 plan here in Virginia is one of only four plans rated gold by Morningstar for two consecutive years. So, Virginia 529, awesome, is what right. Scott has to say. And if, and if you believe Scott, you don't even have to live in Virginia. I mean, that's one of the great things about a 529. You don't have to participate in your own state's 529. That said, often they give tax breaks to residents. But if you don't get a tax break, come on over to Virginia. Come on over to we Virginia or anywhere else. So, and as a <laughs> resident of Virginia uh, and having a Virginia 529, as I'm, do I. I'm, that's awesome news. All right. David heard our Father's Day gift-giving guide, and he wanted to know what that free parental control app I mentioned was. And the answer is Our Pact. I should say I've never used it, but uh, it has Screen Time Parental Control app, App Blocker, GPS Locator, Kid Tracker, and Family Locator. 
Uh, so, our pact. <laughs> O-U-R-P-A-C-T. All right. That's the show. Sean, thank you for joining us this month. It's good to be back. We appreciate it. We'll yeah. have to have you back sooner rather than later. Please do. Sound good? Yeah. All right. The show is edited baby-makingly by Rick Engdahl. <laughs> I assume you're leaving that Sean quip in. Uh, <laughs> Please. <laughs> Our email is answers at fool.com. Also, send us a postcard this summer on your travels. Our address is 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. Thanks again, Sean. For Robert yeah. Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.